You're listening to Just You, a podcast where people speak openly about their stories, revealing the profound impacts that narratives have on shaping our lives. Each episode, join me in exploring the concept of storytelling while we broaden our understanding of the art of personal narrative. Together, we'll have honest conversations, reveal how stories shape our lives, and perhaps discover hidden reflections of our stories along the way. With me, Janika Galloway, as your host, it's time to be Just You. So often how we react as parents is so deeply embedded in, you know, the imprints that we receive when we were young and the stories and the wounds that we carry. And we often have to look back to unpack them in order to know who we want to be in the future. Hi, storytellers. This is Just You. I'm your host, Janika Galloway, and it's time that we talked about generational storytelling. Because I go on and on to you about how important it is to dive into the stories and imprints that we've had, really, since we were little sometimes. And I thought it was time to bring on an expert to explain it in more depth. So my guest today knows her stuff. And she is, well, she's a lot of things. She's a TEDx talker, author, speaker, podcaster, business owner, literally the list goes on. But I feel that at her core, what she's really focused on doing in this life is creating wellness and families through connection and communication. And so that is really what shines through today in our discussion. And I know you're going to really enjoy it. If you have kids or you've thought about having kids, maybe you're just even interested to unpack your own childhood, then stick around because you'll want to hear this one. You've had a remarkable, impactful journey, Lael, and so I wanted to start today by asking you uh, what your story has looked like to date and how you got started on this journey with working with families. Probably the short version actually starts when I finished secondary school and um, I always wanted to work in performance and all that kind of stuff, but I had the opportunity to go overseas for a few years and work and travel. And so I left home when I was 17, packed my bag in my complete naivety of like, I'll be fine. And I just, I didn't even know really where I was headed and um, had to grow up really, really quickly for a few years. And so I, I did the kind of traveling around thing that many young people do, which I think is amazing because it kind of takes you out of your little bubble and helps you see there's a whole wide world out there. And then came back and still wanted to work in performance, but I um, I think I was not thick-skinned enough to keep going to auditions and getting rejected. So I was, I've always had quite the entrepreneur brain in me that went, well, how can I perform and make my own money? So I was like, well, I'll just start my own performance company. And I loved working with children. So my very first company that I started was called Wishlandia and I was 20. Wow. And I started this business where I um, went to kids, I went to people's homes and entertained their kids for birthday parties. This is like the beginning of like fairies and, you know, this is when the wiggles started as well. This is how old I am. So I was starting kind of around the same time as them. And um, and then I got busy and I employed my first person and then my next person. And, and so we would put on big shows and pantomimes in school holidays. And the whole thing was about, it was about entertaining kids, but it was about helping them um, play and have that magic and laughter and all that stuff. And I look back and think it was probably me doing a whole lot of beautiful inner work on the childhood part of me that didn't feel like I got to play as much. So I did a whole lot of healing, I think, around that in that, um, in that company. And I had that business for about seven years. And within that then I had my first child so once I kind of had my first child and then I got pregnant with my second I remember thinking god I don't really want to entertain other people's children anymore <laughs> like I've got my own I'm exhausted yeah and I had a really beautiful powerful birth experience with my second baby and it really opened up something in me that just had this deep then desire and fascination to then work in birth so 
I actually just closed my business. I didn't even sell it. I didn't even want to sell it because I was just in the whole, I just created it and it turned into this beautiful thing. And then I was like, no, I just want to leave it as it is. And then I just wanted to go and work in birth. So I was starting all over again. And and I'm such a big believer. I have been my whole life of doing the apprenticeship, of like jumping in, learning from people who've been before you, um, listening a lot, just seeing how what happens when you jump in. So I yeah. trained to become a doula and a childbirth educator and started working in birth, which was amazing. And I had little kids at the time, so it was a juggle. Like, thank goodness for my beautiful husband who's very supportive. You know, sometimes I'd go to a birth and not come home for like 48 hours or, you know, it was big. You can't time it. No. Yeah. No. I can't imagine. Big, powerful work and and then I started teaching. I, I, I created a business, another business called About Birth with um, another amazing woman, Jules, and and we would teach workshops and, you know, we backed each other up in birth. And then we decided to create an online program. And this was before online programs really existed. So we were like, let's build this program. And there were no kind of easy platforms to do it. Like back, it cost us so much money back then because it was filming it in these hallways and then getting it built, you know, with these bespoke websites. It was it was epic, right? And we were like, but you know what? It will be as soon as we launch it, it will be amazing and everybody will want it. And anyway, we launched it and people did think it was amazing, but people were still not into online learning. So we had this amazing thing that was really quite innovative and, you know, kind of first to market and people were just scared. <laughs> Probably didn't know how to use it. Yeah, back then I can imagine. Well, I think they were still in that whole face-to-face stuff, right? And so we put a lot of energy and money into it and learned a lot from it. You know, we would take it to hospitals and, we, you know, we it was really we were like this is the future but people weren't ready for it. And then interestingly enough, then when COVID happened, we were like, well, here we are. <laughs> like we had this amazing program and I think we had a 600% increase in our sales or something crazy when COVID happened because we already had this program while everyone was trying to pivot and do stuff. We already had this program we created. So that was, it taught me a lot um, making that. So I worked in birth for a long time and then, um, and I found myself working a lot with um, women postnatally who'd had trauma and also, you know, with families who'd had tra- trauma in their birth and and I found that I was often drawn to working with families that really needed extra support. So I started working with them. And then I had my third baby and I had a really big journey with her. And um, we had a bit of a life or death experience. And and I came out the other side of it knowing that I had a bit of trauma and so did she. And that just set me on a really profound, amazing path of understanding trauma more and how we heal and how we help babies heal and I started then looking into the work of Dr. Aletha Salter and Aware Parenting and I started um, learning as much as I could about that and um, then I became an Aware Parenting instructor. So my work kind of started to just move with whatever my children were doing and where I was at. So I spent a, a great chunk of time really immersing myself in that world. And then as my kids grew a bit older from there, then um, my son kind of started to hit puberty. So he was my oldest. And um, somehow I then found myself in secondary schools teaching sex education, which ended up being another bizarre twist (laughs) of fate, Uh, mainly because one day one of their coordinators said, oh, you're a birth educator. Could you come and teach the year nines about birth? And I was like, yeah, for sure. And I went there and I was teaching them and they loved it. And as I was leaving, I said to them, you know, you talking to the kids about porn and consent and all these things. And, and they were like, no, we're not. And I was like, oh God, you really need to. And, and they're like, do you want to come and do it? And I'm like, yep. And so all of a sudden, then I started writing, writing, creating these programs on teenagers around 
how to understand our bodies and how we how we break up with someone respectfully and how we have strong yeses and nos and and I threw myself into that world you know because I was really like look I was watching my own teenagers go through it but also I was like I this is the information I wish I had have had when I was 15 so I did that for about 5 years as well which was amazing and I was still kind of doing a bit of birth work at the time a bit of parenting I was kind of crossing all <laughs> elements of it and then um, that then moved about six years ago into one of my clients who I'd worked with for a few years uh, was one day we were in a session and she was talking about her son had started school and he was really unhappy and she was just like, you know, this school system's really messed up and kids aren't allowed to move their bodies when they want and they can't eat when they want. And she was like, you know, why is it like this? And I'm like, because it's just how it is. And then she proposed to me that we build a school based on all the things that I had taught her and all the stuff that I would teach in my workshops. And, you know, we discussed about what it would be like to build a school based on emotional intelligence that was truly trauma-informed and that would be about really putting the child in the centre, not the data, not the money, but the child in the middle of the picture. So uh, that kind of then fueled, you know, three years of work to create Woodline Primary which has been open for three years now. And that was really all about, um, you know, creating a whole or trying to create a different way of doing education. And, you know, I think building the school was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was so full on and it still continues to be a challenge. You know, it's when anything new that you do, it can often bring lots of um, edges to it and lots of contrasts that you have to learn from. Uh, so yeah, so that led me on to building the school, which is something I never thought I'd do because I didn't even really like education. I was always a bit like, uh, you know, I didn't have great time at school and my kids didn't really enjoy it either, but here I am with the school. And, um, and then what else? And then I think from there, like building the school and, you know, I started a, a podcast with a colleague of mine, a friend, um, called the Aware Parenting Podcast, which we just thought would be great to talk about parenting. And then that did really well. And we ended up having millions of downloads and, and then we were like, well, why don't we write a book about what we're, um, what we talk about? So then we released our first book last year, which has done very well. And in the meantime, you know, I've just, I've kind of done a lot of public speaking. I work with the Resilience Project and travel all over Australia doing talks on raising resilient kids. And, um, and I think that's about it. So, yeah. so I know. Where are we, where are we today? Well, 100%. And that's why I really wanted to just open the floor at the beginning and chat with you about how incredible your story has been, because there was a couple of main pieces that I definitely connected with out of your story. And for the listeners of this podcast, they'll definitely know that I had a traumatic birth with my second, which I've only got two. He was my son and um, is my son. He, he's here. We both made it through the trauma. We're, we're here and happy. But um, it was really interesting to me that you pointed that out, that you also had a journey. And through that, you had this transformation where you completely changed and shifted your life's work and went in a direction that unfolded all of these beautiful door openings for you. And mm. I always seem to connect with people and find mm. people like this. It's it's funny to me. I, I so connect with you on the point where once you go through a transition, especially with having children, it really forces you to kind of look at your own stories and look at your own life narrative and really align, realign or change to make sure that you're in the right spot for you. Mm. Yeah, well, I think it's we have, I mean, at the end of the day, we only really have one thing in the world, which is 
our perception and and how we choose to look at something. We can look at it through the lens of fear or we can look at it through the lens of love. And I I absolutely understand that when we have adversity and challenging experiences that the fear and the pain and the wounding and the trauma can shut us down and we can stay stuck in that or we can lean into it to do the work and the healing which can actually transform those experiences into something so powerful. And I feel like any of the challenges I've had in my life, and, you know, it, it wasn't easy, my, my third um, child, the journey we had, you know, I had PTSD for nearly two years. Like I had to do a lot of work on healing. Like there were, I went from being someone who was out there in the world talking, running workshops to I could barely get my kids to school. That felt enough. Mm-hmm. And it was actually one of the most transformative experiences for me because it really taught me about trauma and healing and anxiety and feelings. And, you know, it was, it was a gift. I just saw it as a gift because I remember thinking, you know, I can either go one or two ways here. I can keep numbing myself and not coping and and literally medicate myself to get through life or I can go, all right, let's do it. You know, there's got to be ways to transform this and um, and lean in, and I did. And, and I have so much deep compassion for people in their trauma stories and journey because it's not easy and sometimes people don't have the support to do it. They might not have the finances to help support them to do it. Sometimes the wounds and the traumas feel so big that it's too terrifying to go there. And and that is okay. We're all doing the best job we know how. But I feel very blessed for those experiences because I think they brought me home to the truth of who I am. And that to me, I think is one of the greatest gifts and goals that we can have in life is to be the authentic version of ourselves. And those experiences that I had kind of stripped down all the crap of who we think we are you know we get caught up in what job I do or how I look or how much money I make or what people think of me and yet when you're on your knees in those spaces with trauma or with vulnerability you know that none of that is actually true or matters it's actually about who you really are on the inside and and your enoughness and that that is what I was gifted through those experiences Yeah, that's beautiful, Lael. That's really beautiful. I completely agree. And I think that it has this way of just completely stripping back all of the things you thought you knew about yourself, all of the beliefs you thought you had or that you were given that you just claimed as your own. And it gives you that opportunity to really assess what story you're currently living and what the narrative of now looks like and whether or not that's something that you feel fits the direction that you want your life story to go in. And you're so right. You have a choice in that moment to sort of say, okay, this is how I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to be, or I'm going to try and move in a way that feels more in alignment and feels more authentic to who I truly am. Mm, Yeah. And it's not easy. Like, I mean, we can talk about it. (laughs) We're like, oh, it's beautiful. It's transforming. It's hard work, right? It's it's sometimes it is much, it feels much easier to just hide under the doona and just go, it's too hard. And doing the work and leaning into it is is hard you know in my work these days I work with parents uh, and adults you know I do a lot of work with corporates talking to people about where they're stuck in their lives and the stories they've got around them and I run parenting programs these immersions which are really all about diving into the stories and imprints that we've had since we were little and how they serve us and how they don't and so often how we respond and react we react as parents 
is so deeply embedded in, you know, the imprints that we receive when we were young and the stories and the wounds that we carry. And we often have to look back to unpack them in order to know who we want to be in the future. So it's not easy work. I say it to parents all the time. You know, you have to be compassionate with yourself and you have to congratulate yourself for even being willing to ask these questions because it's not easy. No. I wanted to talk to you about your book. So you've got this incredible book that you co-wrote called Raising Resilient and Compassionate Children. And you actually did dedicate a bit of a section in that book to talking about how important it is for parents to really revisit their stories and Mm -hmm. kind of go through their own childhood and heal from their early wounds. Would you mind taking us through a little bit of that too? Mm, Yeah. Well, I think whether we like it or not, how we were raised is going to turn up in our parenting. It's going to turn up in our intimate relationships. So, uh, you know, many people know we often attract a partner in who's going to mirror back those feelings and stuff that are unresolved from when we were little. So I often joke, we sometimes think we choose our partners because they look sexy or, you know, we we love what they do. But actually our soul's kind of there going, oh, what kind of wounds have you got? Oh, yeah, that matches my wounds. That's perfect. <laughs> let's mm. come together and let's just mirror this stuff out with each other and then we decide to have children and the kids are like oh parents come on (laughs) now I'm going to act in certain ways to to push your buttons so that you guys sort this stuff out so I think you know I say to parents all the time we've got lovely beautiful amazing imprints which may be around being really tender with our children it may be around supporting who they are in their amazing nature we may also have imprints that say crying is not okay we also may have strong imprints around trust that say don't trust anyone because life is out to get you and it can be really scary we might have imprints you know particularly a lot of women that i work with have stories around self-care that says if you take care of your own needs, you're lazy or you should feel guilty because a good mother is one that sacrifices everything for her children. That's a good mother. Or perhaps, you know, men have stories around, um, you know, what a good provider looks like, which is you just work, 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 and you never home, right? And that that's how you provide for your family and show love. So we've all got stories because we all grow up watching our caregivers and, you know, that family of origin. And as children, we take that on board and we watch it and we see it and we then often believe that to be true and then we keep looking for evidence that it is true you know if we have a story around trust that is really wobbly we will often keep searching for more evidence to go see you can't trust that person that's not right don't trust anyone you know and and we do it with everything right we often look for the evidence to back up the imprints and stories we have even if we don't like them Mm. and so when we come to something like parenting a lot of those stories and imprints lay there subconsciously. We don't often realize them. And then our beautiful kiddos come along and, you know, part of who they are is saying to us, hey, I don't really want to carry this story that you've got. (laughs) I don't want this continued projected you must sacrifice yourself at all costs vibe. This is bullshit. I don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So what do they do? They kind of push back on us and they behave in certain ways to activate those feelings within us. And this happens to every parent. And I I say, if you want to know where your wounds are, just watch where you get frustrated, watch where you get angry, watch where you want to control. Now, sometimes that is basic. We do those things because we're tired and we just need to get the three-year-old in the car. And, you know, like there's there's just day-to-day life stuff that we often have to navigate. And it's very hard in in parenting these days because we don't live in the community and we don't have the support we need. So there's day-to-day stuff that really pushes our edges. But the reoccurring stories that often turn up around our children or our partners 
are the invitations to go, what am I making this mean? What is this about for me? Where does this story come from? And we'll see that because when we get frustrated when our kids don't do what we want them to do or we get agitated because, you know, we've got taught in our family of origin that the, you know, the most important thing is being academic and being getting good grades, right, because then you'll be a success in the world. That's what was drummed into us. And then we have a child who could not care less about school and just wants to climb trees or, you know, kick a footy and not care about learning. Well, that's going to bring up that edge, isn't it? Because what we equate success to is academic success. And then we've got this child in front of us doing the opposite. And then often we can have a story that goes, oh my God, they're not going to be successful. They're going to be a dropout. Is that going to reflect on me as a parent that says I'm not a good parent? Like we just, we have stories. We have so many stories that come up. So the goal is, I often say, is to watch as parents what activates us where we get reactive and always be curious always go I wonder what's going on for me here mm-hmm. now we might start yelling at our kids because they're not listening to us or doing something we don't want them to do and if we ask ourselves what's going on here the answer might be I am so tired I just need a break yeah. <laughs> and we go okay there's a need that needs to be met so I'm going to ask for some more support or I'm going to tap out and say to my partner they're your kids for now <laughs> like yeah. I need to go sleep yeah. or I need to go for a walk or I need to eat And we meet that need and then we can come back on board. But if it's not so much about that need, then we have to dig a bit deeper and be curious as to what are the feelings I have going on here? There's something sitting here for me that feels scary, Mm. right? Or it feels dangerous or it feels frustrated or whatever it is. And if we can be curious enough, then it will often reveal itself as to what we're making it mean and what it's about. And then that's our invitation to look at, all right, well, Perhaps there is a younger part of me that is still holding a whole lot of tension and pressure around I am only lovable if I get good grades. In my family of origin, what I learn is if you try hard and you don't give up and you have grit and you get an A, then you are worthy of being celebrated. But what happens if I get a C? Well, am I still lovable? And, you know, hopefully parents go, of course you are, but often the messages we get say something different Mm. and then that becomes our narrative and that feels dangerous because our deep core and wound is all about I need to be accepted. I need to be loved. Like am I enough with who I am? And so these are the ways that these stories turn up. These are the ways that our, um, our imprints and what happens to us come up to the surface in parenting to be healed. That's what they're there for. They're asking to be healed. They're asking to be like, let's lean into this, let's address it, let's fix it. And then we can be, you know, we can be a lot more conscious as a human and then we are less likely to pass on some of our crap to our kids. Now, there's no perfect, right? You can't do it all so that your children don't have anything. Your kids are going to have stuff just because we're human and we all have stuff. But they might have a lot less stuff and that's what we want. And and what they may feel as they move into adulthood is, hey, all of me is welcome and I am free to be who I need to be in the world. And that's one of the best gifts we can give them is if they've got that deep connection to themselves that say, I am enough as a human purely by just being me, yeah. right? Yeah. Then we, we walk into the world with our eyes open with possibility, with compassion, you know, it's, it's powerful. It really is. And I think with some of my sessions that I've had recently, I've had like a string of similar sessions where we've gotten to the end of it and we've realized that this story and narrative of holding things in to refrain this 
story of being the good girl or the good boy Mm. and having to always act and be perceived in a certain way really does hold back the ability to go out and feel comfortable being accepted for your true self. Did you want to maybe dive in and let us know what your opinion is on how our expression gets halted if we're just trying to be good all of the time and celebrated for being quote unquote good? It's pretty much how most people are raised in this behaviorism paradigm that says when you're good, we reward you. And when you're bad, we take something away. And that really is, I think, the result of the time that many of us have grown up in in the last, you know, 30, 20, 30, 40 years which really focused on this behaviorism, you know, we must control you, you know, this that strong authoritarian element of what I say goes from the parent. And it really, and, it, and it's still supported in our education system today. We see it. When you're good, we'll give you a sticker. And when you're bad, we'll put your name on the board and we'll keep you in at recess, right? And what we're doing in those things is just saying, I need you to be compliant and I need you to conform in the way that I will believe is good enough. Right, so I'm in control here. Now, if you think about if you think about that as an adult, you know, many of us have reached a point in our lives where we're like, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, screw off. I, I, yeah, that's exactly it, right? And yet we do it to children all the time. And, yes, we are guiding children and, yes, we're teaching them how to be really wonderful humans in the world. But when we focus on the behaviorism paradigm, which is I will decide whether you are enough or not right? And I will decide whether your behavior is acceptable or not. Now, the issue with this is that when a child does something wrong, so let's just say we've got a five-year-old who's had a big day at school and they've come home and, you know, they've got a whole lot of pent-up feelings going on and, you know, you make them a snack after school and you cut their sandwich and you cut it in squares and they say they wanted triangles and all of a sudden you your child sees that, you know, you've cut it in squares and they pick up the plate and they throw it and all of a sudden, you know, the sandwich ends up on the floor and they have this almighty meltdown, right, which is a pretty extreme reaction to some circles and squares, yep. I mean some triangles yep. and squares. Like, were right? you at my house this morning? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And so... In that moment, though, because so many of us are conditioned to be all about um, being good, we are going to see that child as bad. You know, how dare you do that? That is bad behavior. It's not acceptable. And so what we often do is we might shame the child. We might smack them. We might send them to their room. um, We might tell them they can only come out when they're good again. And so what happens in that moment is that child who is flooded with feelings and emotions, which usually has been all about what has actually happened throughout the day, not that moment. And for a beautiful five-year-old who's still learning how to navigate feelings and regulation and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's they've reached a tipping point and all of a sudden here it comes pouring out in the safest place, which is home, the parents I love. And so we send them to his room and then what happens is the child in that room, you know, is not so much upset about what they did with the sandwich, but it becomes more about the rupture with the parent Mm. and it becomes more about the person that I love and that is meant to keep me alive here is upset with me. So I better be good in order to, um, to get that love and survive. And what often happens is they don't learn anything around I've done something bad. What they internalize that is what they internalize that as is, <laughs> that didn't sound right, is I am bad, right? And not I've done something wrong, but I am wrong. And so then we start this loop and this cycle of a negative self-talk that says I'm not okay, 
in the world. And also we've got a story that actually says, and I'm only lovable if I'm good. So the child then gets calm and and perhaps numbs those feelings. So has to learn how to do something with them. So maybe they repress them. Maybe they start sucking their thumb or grabbing a blanket or, or trying to distract themselves. Or they all of a sudden go, gosh, I have to keep my mum happy because she's mad at me. And then they come out of the room and they're looking through eyes of like, you know, do you love me? Am I okay now? And so they're constantly gauging, you know, am I okay in this situation? Am I lovable? As opposed to, you know, you are lovable even when you're angry and frustrated and sad and you are so lovable and you're happy and joyous and and full of life right but this behaviorism paradigm really does say to children often you're only acceptable when you fit into the mold that i believe you should be now that looks very different to all people and it makes children feel incredibly powerless and then it also means that they often grow up to be teenagers that do one of two things one they get to a point where they're so angry and they're so pissed off with having been shut down and not listened to and getting in trouble that they get really good at lying about what they're doing and they also often need to rebel in a much greater way and they also then often do way more risk-taking behaviors smoking drinking vaping Mm. you know risky sexual behavior porn all those kind of things right because there's a whole lot of feelings there that haven't been heard and seen and as you go through that transition in teenage years you know it it gets harder to numb those feelings so they need to work harder to numb them or it turns into aggression with that build-up of frustration and they take it out on other people yeah. And they bully and they hit and, and you know, they behave in the way. Or the other option is they become such a good girl or a good boy. They don't ever take risks. They can create a story that is often around, I'm only good enough if everyone's approving of me. So when they hear that someone's talking badly about them, it fills them with absolute shame and dread and I'm not okay. And, and you know, then they bend and mold to keep everybody happy all the time as opposed to standing in their center saying, what is a strong yes for me and what feels okay for me? So I think just in explaining that, I think most people can go, oh, yep, that was me. Yep, I was the one that was like, F you as a teenager and I don't care and I'm going to push back. Or perhaps you were the good boy or good girl who just didn't ever want to upset anybody because it felt too dangerous. Or, you know, maybe you were really angry or, or you just shut down. And all of these things and stories, you know, they lean into mental health. They lean into anxiety, depression, all the stuff that we have because most of those things there are a absolute avoidance or numbing of the feelings that we need to feel at the time. And it makes sense why we don't feel them though, because it doesn't feel safe to feel them. Mm -hmm. So if our parents are constantly going, that's unacceptable, you can't be like that, then we have to learn to do something with them, which usually means we have to shut them down or they come out in other ways that are, you know, aggressive or angry. And so it makes sense why we need to shut them down because it's not safe to express them. So we can see the perfect storm that happens with them. It's a circle. Totally. Yeah. 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 And then we become parents, right? Who have all this backlog of feelings there. And then our children behave in ways where they're like, you know, a four year old's yelling at you, I hate you, you're the worst mum in the world, because you know, you wouldn't let them ride their bike outside at ten o'clock at night or whatever. And uh 
and we get reactive because all our own wounds and stories are being activated again. And often the thought goes through our head of, I would never be able to speak to my parent that way. And, and then there comes the story again. And really, if we can be curious in that moment and go, oof, what's happening here? Well, firstly, if I look at what's happening in front of me, I've got a four-year-old who's pretty, probably got a big backpack full of feelings themselves. And they've, you know, they've got a whole lot going on. And in this moment, what they're doing is, um, you know, they're trying to vent and they're trying to move those feelings and they're bringing it to the safest person. And also what's going on for me here? Well, what's going on for me is the inner four-year-old in me is freaking out because if I ever did that, I would have got hit or I would have got sent to my room and here's my child mirroring that back to me. And so here's a really powerful moment for me as an adult to take a breath and go, what is happening here in this situation? And what am I feeling in my body and what do I need and what does my child in front of me need? And this is where we begin to change the story and we begin to change the cycle. And what else we can do is we can talk to someone about it. We can go have therapy or we can have a listening partner that we can talk about, God, I get so activated when my four-year-old screams and, and this is what goes on for me and you start unpacking it. This is how we begin to change the cycle. This is how we begin to do more of our own conscious work so that we're not carrying on those imprints and patterns onto somebody else. I really love that point, Leal, on getting curious because just the other week my daughter was having an expression, we'll call it. She was having a meltdown in the park because it was time to go and my immediate reaction was, oh my gosh, she's making so much noise. Everybody's looking at us. They probably think I'm a terrible mom. Mm -hmm. And I had to really stop and evaluate and get curious on, okay, well, why do I care that people are looking at us have this exchange? Yeah. And, you know, what story does that bring up for me on not wanting to be seen and wanting to, you know, stay quiet and stay in line? And so I really had to think about that on the fly. And then once I kind of assessed that, I was able to have a expression on both ends. She was able to express, I was able to express, and we got somewhere where it was like, okay, like now we're both yeah. being seen. Mm. We, we see each other. Mm. And it was, it was really beautiful, but I definitely have been trying to use that more in my day-to-day life with my children mm. of when something gets triggered in me or brought up in me or flared up in me, I sit back and sort of examine Mm. and get curious and become a witness to, well, what's going on inside of me? They're our best teachers. They really are. Uh, Absolutely. And it sounds like you did beautifully in that moment, being able to kind of pause and identify. It's not easy. And it's so not easy in public when our kids are having some big feelings. Like it's the hardest to just kind of go, okay, just block it out for a minute and just look at this little person in front of me and that's who I need to be connected into. It's it's really, really tricky. So you did very, very well being able to just hold that. Yeah. And so do you have any tips that you'd like to share with us on just when we're in those moments? Obviously, there's becoming curious and taking a step back. Do you have any other tips for us when we're in those moments in our stories from the past maybe get flared up and we have to go on parenting or engaging with children or living our lives in that manner? Well, I think there's kind of two two ways I look at it. What can we do in in the in the immediate circumstances. So when we're starting to get angry or our kids are really, you know, firing up and we can start to feel our blood boiling, one of the first things we can do in the moment is just identify and sometimes that's saying it out loud, oh, I'm starting to feel frustrated, right? So you're just naming whatever you're feeling, which can just instantly take it out of your head and put it out there. 
um, a, and, and really invite everybody to do what feels right for them. But one of the things I used to do when my kids were little is I would just kind of start shaking my arms and my legs. Like, so again, when we're feeling that fire rising within us, it's often adrenaline. It's often like past um, stuck stuff in us. It's like, there's danger here. We need to stop this at all costs, which is why we yell, or we try and shut it down or we walk away. So what we want to do is just identify, yep, there's a reaction here and I need to move this through my body. So I would sometimes just shake my body, like just stand there and shake it, like just like, oh, I'm going to get this out. There's stuff here. So we might do that. Um, You might look a bit crazy, but keep doing it because it's good. If we can move it through your body in a healthy way, it means we're less likely to yell. Uh, I often invite parents, if they can, to go into the bathroom and just wash their hands with cool water to remind yourself to cool down. This is not an emergency. And even if you look yourself in the eye and just say, this is not an emergency, okay, I am the parent here. I'm going to take a deep breath. And that cool water can sometimes just cool us. Now, if you've got little people, they'll follow you into the bathroom (laughs) with their big feelings. So sometimes it's, but I'm like, anything that you can do is a bit of a pattern interrupt to just go there's big stuff happening here in this moment, okay? Sometimes it's going outside. Sometimes it's standing on the grass. Sometimes it's just what do I need to do in this moment to just know I have to find my center here. So grounding yourself, some people taking a deep breath. I find, though, that when we start to feel the fire moving within us, if we can do something that allows the energy to move, like shaking your hands or your legs, just even kind of making noises like, oof, or just ah, just something that's just I got to get this out so I don't yell at you is just directing it in another direction. Or um, again, and, and then doing something that moving the cool can be good because sometimes even in our head we can be like, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm, and the next minute you just completely lose it. So moving something through your body can be a good thing. And then we're doing whatever we can to diffuse that situation. So we're moving towards our child and we're saying what we see. I can see you're really angry, honey, and I can know that you want it to look a different way and I'm not willing for you to eat the dog's food or whatever it is that you're having to say. I set a limit around and we just we state it and we we speak it and we just stay calm and know that there's a storm in front of me and it will pass and our child in that moment is actually waving a red flag saying, can you help me? You know, it does not feel good for a child to hit their sibling. It never feels good for a child to scream, I hate you. They're not, you know, they're doing it because they've reached capacity. They're on overwhelm. They're on overload. So when we can actually look behind the behavior and go, when my child's having a hard time, they're actually signaling to me, can you help me? Right. I'm not doing this deliberately to make your life hard, although it can often feel that way. Uh, They're saying, can you please help me in these moments? So if we can see that, then we are going to change how we're going to respond. So if we can look at it through the lens of you're having a hard time, we are more likely to move into empathy as, as opposed to judgment. So we've got that going on. And that's what we can often sometimes do in the moment. But whenever we have big reactions like that, that happens quite often, I think it's a really important invitation into doing a bit more of your own inner work so it doesn't have to keep turning up that way. So sometimes when my kids were younger, when I'd have a reaction to something and I'd 
I'd be able to observe it and then I would just go, right, I'm just going to put that in the box and I'm going to come back to it later because I can't deal with it in the moment. But I've just watched myself have a massive reaction to what they've just said. So I'm going to file that away there and I'm going to come back and pick it up later. And then you deal with whatever's happening in front of you. And then later I'd ring a friend or journal or something and I'd just, you know, have a chat with a friend and just say, oh, so today this thing happened and and I watched that I felt like that and, and I'd just start talking about it. And in the talking about it, we often get to the bottom of where it comes from and what it's about. And we can do that with journaling. You can do it in more formal therapy if you want. But it's an invitation to lean in and go, there's something here from my past that is asking me to be curious. So the more maintenance work we can do, which is unpacking our stories when we're calm, the more maintenance we can do by self-care, so getting our needs met, you know, and, and look again, I know it's a huge struggle when you've got little people, but how can you get support to get your needs met? The better chance you have of being able to turn up in the way you want to turn up. So whenever I hear of a parent or I see a parent who's screaming lots and is just, I'm like, that is not a bad parent. That is a parent that is so strung out that needs a cuddle and a good cry and someone to fold their washing and make them dinner and put them to bed <laughs> and love on them and and help them unpack what's going on so they can come back to their best self. You know, we, we only, no, nobody feels good yelling. We, we don't ever want to do that. These are our beautiful little people that we love. But sometimes we are not getting our needs met and sometimes our stories are really big that they just leak out the sides. Yeah. And and it we have to make decisions in that moment to go, I'm, I'm going to do the work on this because we end up then just passing our trauma onto our kids and that's what we don't want. No, it's that balance of cleansing away, grounding yourself, having conversations that can be difficult but are required and then connecting properly with your children and yourself again. Yeah. And I think that's the beautiful point. You know, something I didn't say is that we're all going to get to a point sometimes where we yell and we lose and we don't behave in the way we want to. And repair is so important. So if you do yell at your kids or you've, you know, you've spoken to them or behaved in a way that hasn't felt good, please go back and repair afterwards and say, I'm so sorry for speaking that way to you. I'm so sorry for yelling. That is on me. You know, I am learning as an adult and I need to hold that for myself and I'm so sorry and I'm here to listen to how that felt for you. You know, do you need a cuddle? Do you need to have a cry around it? You can tell me exactly how you feel about it. And what can I do to repair with you? Because we are firstly modeling what repair looks like, which is very important. Two, we're actually owning our story. So our children actually go, yeah, okay, they're just humans as well. And then we, we're creating another bridge of connection, which is really important, you know, so that we can move forward together. Oh, Liel, it was so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for giving us all of this insightful information. And I wanted to dive in on your story. And I feel like I've gotten so much around parenting that I'm going to chat with my husband about tonight. And we already implement a lot of those pieces from your podcast um, that you had. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Whoa, how good was that? What an incredible woman she is. And, you know, we recorded that a little while ago and I just listened to it again 
before recording this conclusion and I just felt like I picked up several more pieces of treasures and insights from Lael that I maybe didn't remember or didn't recall that first time. So I definitely encourage you to listen again because, yeah, especially if you're having a really tough day with the kids or you're finding that you're getting flared up or your stories are coming to the surface, then listen again because it was really interesting. And it was actually funny today I found myself using one of her pattern interruptions that she described, which I love that name. So I usually cleanse and ground myself every day, but sometimes I need to get better with moving my body and moving the energy in my body. It's like one of the pieces that I maybe leave to last. And I was feeling stuck and flat and exhausted with something that I've been writing for most of the week. And every time I looked at it, I just felt like just blah, so over it. And not inspired by what I was writing and everything I was trying to put onto paper wasn't flowing. And I just was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to move this through my body. And so I got out there and I did. I did a big walk. I shook my hands, stood up and jumped in the spot and just came back to my computer freaking on a roll. So cool. So I highly recommend you try some of those pattern interruptions that she described. And with that, I hope you adored this episode as much as I did. The episodes of the podcast are still coming out sporadically for season two, but I'll be sure to keep you updated on Instagram at Just With Janika for the details on that. Until next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Just You, a storytelling podcast creating a space for people to voice their stories, personal experiences, and learnings to help others identify themselves in them. If you've got a story to share or a voice you'd suggest be heard, get in touch in the show notes. Everybody has a story in them and sometimes the story is reflected in us all. Thank you for listening to today's and chat soon.